chapter 10. Sunday morning, we're making our way through the book of Acts. We come to chapter 10. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. There's some gentlemen coming up the aisles right now, and they'll give you a Bible. It'll be marked right to our place here in the Scriptures for your ease. And then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 10, we'll pick things up in verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop in the city of Joppa to pray about the sixth hour, noon, lunchtime. And then he became very hungry, and he wanted to eat, but they were preparing the meal, and, and while all of this is going on, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and an object like a great uh, sheet, we could look, think of it as a tablecloth, bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And then it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, animals that were considered both clean and unclean according to the law of Moses. And a voice then came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, declaring, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house, and they stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, these men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man who was who uh, fears God and has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by the holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he, he invited them in and he lodged them overnight. And the next day Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered into Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter came in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he spoke with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go into one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? To preach the gospel, Peter. <laughs> Talk about... This is an apostle that doesn't recognize an open door in front of him like this. It gives me such hope. So he still can't believe what's going on, really. And so he, I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. 
And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have rem- are remembered in the sight of God. And send therefore to Joppa, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea, and when he comes, you will speak to him. And so I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded uh, you by God. And then Peter opened his mouth and he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this chapter. And we thank you that your book is a living book. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, the technology changes and we have cars and we have uh, phones and we have all these things that they didn't have 2,000 years ago. But people are still people. The lessons are still the lessons, Lord. The most important things in life and who and what we are inside remains the same through one generation after another. And we thank you that your word has something to speak to, uh, not only Peter 2,000 years ago, but to us as your children in this room today. And we pray that you would freshly fill us right now with your Holy Spirit and that you would give us a fresh capacity, Lord, and a fresh attention span, a fresh capacity to hear your voice and to receive whatever your Holy Spirit wants to speak to our lives individually uh, through this wonderful uh, account that is within your book. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The tenth chapter of the book of Acts is oftentimes referred to as the Gentile Pentecost, because it's here we have the first record of the gospel in the early church being preached to a solely uh, Gentile audience, and, and it occurs in the form of a centurion by the name of Cornelius, his household, and then a group of close friends that he invited in his house uh, to hear the preaching of Peter. All of this took place in a city called uh, Caesarea, and it marked the start of this great flood of Gentiles who began to flow from that point on into the church, and that great flood and flow of Gentiles into Christianity and into the kingdom of God has continued now for 2,000 years and continues into this uh, very room that we're sitting in here this morning. Peter preached the gospel to them, and everyone in the home uh, there believed in Jesus. They were saved. The Holy Spirit then fell upon them. They began to speak in other tongues, and then Peter uh, water baptized them as a result. It is a tremendous event that's recorded here, but I think it's very important to realize that God had to overcome a couple of very, very major obstacles in order to accomplish this and to overcome obstacles that were found in a quarter where you would least expect them 
to be found. We notice that he is desiring, that is God. He's got this Gentile family who is searching for God. They're desiring a relationship with God. They're desiring to be saved. And his problem was not in accomplishing that. He had no problem getting the attention of Cornelius, of his household, of his friends, putting this desire in their heart. There's no problem on that end. God's problem was in finding a Christian, even in finding an apostle, who would then be willing to go to these Gentiles in order to preach the gospel to them. And Acts chapter 10 is an account of how he was able to do it. And the two major issues that he had to deal with in Peter's life in order to make Peter willing to go to that house and to preach the gospel uh, to those people. But in order to understand all of this a little bit, We need to first understand a little bit about this great wall of separation that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in the world at that time. The wall that existed culturally, spiritually, and so forth, physically even, between the Jews and the Gentiles was a very high wall, a very, very thick wall. I mean, nothing, the Berlin Wall had nothing on it. The Great Wall of China had nothing on the wall. Uh, that Jews and Gentiles had built in terms of uh, between one another. There was a considerable and a mutual contempt between uh, feelings of contempt between both the Jew and the Gentiles and the Gentiles and the Jews at the time. And the Jews looked down on the Gentiles, and in most cases, many cases at least, not without justification. The Jews had already uh, suffered a great deal in terms of anti-Semitism even 2,000 years ago by the time that point in human history had come. They'd already been through the Assyrian captivity, already through the Babylonian uh, captivity, and all of the anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jews that was entailed there all the way up in human history until Peter's day. And the Jews had a lot to be bitter about in this regard as a result of the persecution. And their bitterness was real toward the non-Jew population, the Gentile. And a Gentile is very simply a non-Jew. In fact, this animus was so deep that some rabbis would wake up each morning and they would pray to God, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. Well, you can almost listen to that and laugh inside related to that, but the rabbis meant it. This is how great the separation was between the Jew and between the Gentile. Because of this already long-standing history of anti-Semitism of the Gentiles at the time, some rabbis in Peter's day went so far as to teach Jews not to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because all that would accomplish is to bring in another Gentile into the world who will then persecute us as Jews. This is how raw the persecution was for the Jews. This is how, how raw the history between the Jew and Gentile was even up to that point in history. And someone even far in the teaching of the rabbis is to teach that the Gentiles had been created by God, not for any relationship with him, but simply to fuel the, the fires of hell for eternity. 
It wasn't unusual for the Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. There was an element of pride in all of that, but in part simply because the description was apt in the light of the fact that most of the Gentile world at the time lived like dogs. They lived like animals, and they lived in following all of their various gods, which were essentially the worship of human flesh. They lived like animals in just following the desires and the lusts of the body in the same way that an animal does. And by comparison, the Jews were a very, very holy people. The Jews would refer to the Gentiles as being the uncircumcision, and it was a put-down. It was a racial slur in that day. And the Jews were sometimes referred to as the circumcision because of the covenant that God had made with the Jewish people through Abraham, and circumcision was a mark of that uh, covenant. It identified them as God's chosen people. And so when they referred to the Jew, uh, Gentiles as being the uncircumcised, it communicated the fact that the Gentiles had no relationship with God in the way that the Jews did. No serious Jew would ever eat a meal with a Gentile in that day, not only because of the dietary laws of the law of Moses. It wasn't that a Gentile household couldn't prepare a kosher meal for a Jewish family. It would have been hard, but they would have been able uh, to do that. But it was the Jews refrained from eating with the Gentiles simply because they did not want to unify or be united or associated in any way uh, or have a relationship with the Gentiles. And the Jews had kind of a mystical view related to eating. And that was here you would have this common meal. If you were invited to somebody's house, they would bring out the pita bread. You would take the bread, you would dip it into the sauce, you would eat it. They would then take the bread, dip it in the sauce, and they would eat it. And now you have in common that same loaf of bread, so to speak, and the same sauce that you had dipped uh, the spice into. What was now in your body as a Jew was now in their body as well. And it signified this mystical kind of joining or relationship or union. And no Jew wanted to have any kind of a union with a Gentile in those days, mystical or uh, otherwise. No Jew would go into the home of a Gentile for fear of becoming ceremonially unclean before God as a result. And Peter confesses as much to Cornelius in verse 28. But here in our text, the situation concerning the Jew and the Gentile is even worse than all of that, because Cornelius is not only a Gentile, he is also a Roman. And if the Jews in Israel had a dislike for Gentiles in general, they possessed a particular dislike of the Romans. The Gentile Romans were an occupying military force in their land uh, at that time. And here you have this fiercely independent people known as the Jews, and they have to uh, live in submission to this occupying force. Now, you and I, most of us in this room, we've been born and raised in the United States of America. We don't understand, but we are a very independent, fiercely independent people as Americans. But I've never woken up, not one day in my life, woke up and, 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 and came face to face with the fact 
that as Americans we're not free to do what it is that we want to do here in the United States of America, but that we're now occupied by China or Russia or some other force, and now everything we have to do is now in submission to them. And when you're a freedom-loving people, when you're an independent people, it grinds on you. Every day it grinded on the uh, children of Israel. Here is this force that lives in our land, and the only reason they're able to do it is because we live in a time in which, in human history, where might makes right. They have a greater military than we do. And so they hated the Jews uh, for this. And these Romans... They hated the Romans for this. And these Romans, they stripped the land of its wealth. They took the best of the land for themselves. They brought all of their gods and all of their idols into the land as well. And then they proceeded in the eyes of the Jews to walk through the length of the land, north, south, east, and west, with the cockiness and the pride of a, of a conquering empire. And in all of the ways, spoken and unspoken, subtle and overt, reminding the Jewish people that they were not in the control of their nation, but uh, they, the Romans, were in control of the land of Israel, and the Jews were a subjugated people. And the Jews had a lot to be bitter about. And at this, all of this level of tension and hostility that existed between the Roman and between uh, the Jew had uh, existed in Israel for almost a hundred years. And simply put, the Jews in that day could not believe. They could not even have it enter into their thinking. They couldn't entertain the possibility of the thought that God had any interest in a Gentile. The indoctrination was so complete and so thorough, they couldn't bring themselves to think that the God that they worshipped would also be concerned about the Gentile, much less be concerned about a Gentile's salvation, much less allow a Gentile into the holiness of his kingdom. This is all that's going on inside of Peter's mind, inside of the Jews at this particular time in history. And all of it, of course, is perfectly encapsulated in the statement of the other apostles in chapter 11, when later the apostles call Peter uh, to the carpet and demand an explanation of him for preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and as a result, them uh, getting saved. And as Peter later uh, recounted the salvation of Cornelius, of his household, how God did the whole thing, he wasn't to blame. He was as prejudiced as the rest of the apostles. And we're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, and when they heard these things that Peter spoke, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And we can look at it and laugh and say, of course, but this was like a bomb going off in their mind. This was their mindset toward the Roman and toward the Gentile. I think it's helpful to notice the progress in Peter's life, at least, that was occurring in breaking down this wall of separation in his life. Realize that by the time we come to Acts chapter 10 in this book, it is now 10 years since the day of Pentecost. 
Ten years since Jesus' death, burial, his resurrection, and then the 50 days that then uh, followed the Feast of Passover to the Feast of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews on that day. And ten years later, the apostles remain largely holed up in the city of Jerusalem. They're all bunkered down inside of the city of Jerusalem, despite having been given the great commission from Jesus, where he spoke to these apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Ten years later, they haven't moved on that commission. Jesus himself spoke further to these same apostles that he would supply them with the power to be able to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and to bring this gospel. And speaking of the baptism with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus declared to them, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But the apostle Peter does something interesting here. He begins to take steps in the right direction regarding all of this. In Acts chapter 8, with the Apostle John, when this great revival broke out in the area of Samaria, they weren't full Jews in Samaria, but they were half Jews. And Philip preaches the gospel, people begin to get saved, and it was Peter and John who left Jerusalem to go and to investigate this revival that had broken out. In chapter 9, Peter takes the initiative, we don't know from where, but to head out uh, from the city of Jerusalem to go on kind of a bit of a ministry trip uh, westward toward the Mediterranean Sea, and part of his ministry took place in uh, Lydda where he raised uh, Aninius from his, uh, his uh, sick bed, and then also went on to Joppa where he raised a woman by the name of Dorcas. Uh, from the dead. I personally am inclined, if you look at that and you think to yourself, what in the world got into Peter? Uh, Why in the world does he break away from the other ten apostles and begin to take steps like this? And I think that the apostle Paul, or just Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, kind of at this point in time, had a part to play in it. And here is Paul. He gets saved on the road to Damascus. He goes into the city of Damascus, preaches the gospel there uh, after he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel to great effect. They want to kill him. He ends up escaping the city, goes to Arabia for three years, comes back into Damascus, continues to preach the gospel, comes into Jerusalem and continues to do the same thing on his way to ultimately making his way to his hometown, the city of Tarsus. And I'm convinced that somewhere in the course of all of that, as he spoke with the apostles in Jerusalem, that he let them know in the light of his experience and his travels, gentlemen, there is an entire world out there that is waiting to hear what you have to say. 
There's an entire world out there waiting to know God in the way that you know God. Would one of you mind leaving the safe confines of Jerusalem and head out and see what God might do in obedience to the Great Commission? I can't say it for sure that that occurred. But I think that perhaps something like it happened, and at any rate, somehow something gets through to the Apostle Peter, and he begins to take uh, that, uh, that step. We're told here that while staying in the city of Joppa, Peter was lodging with a tanner by the name of Simon, who shared uh, Peter's uh, name, and that he was, uh, without a doubt, in Joppa, this tanner, this Jewish tanner was uh, uh, this tanner was also a Jew. Now, a tanner would tra- treat the hides of uh, dead animals in the same way that they do today, different technology, but it's the same idea where you take the skins, the hides of these dead animals, and then you take that leather and you fashion it into something more useful like sandals or other things. I don't know how many of you have been raised in a town around a tannery. Any of you raised in a city around a tannery? Just a quick show of your hands here just so I can find somebody who I can relate to. No, you've all been spared that. God bless you. When I grew up in Napa, California, they had a tannery that was located right on the river. And uh, you knew there was a tannery in town because blocks in all directions from the tannery, the tannery let off a smell, and it wasn't a very pleasant smell. Real estate that was within the reach of that smell was significantly cheaper than on the other side uh, of that smell. And so here he's staying with this tanner, and there had to be quite a smell involved with all of that. Uh, But there's a little bit more to it than, uh, than all of that here. The occupation of a tanner was looked down upon by the Jews for a variety of reasons. There was, of course, as I've mentioned, the smell. In fact, the smell upon a tanner was so great because the smell would then enter into your skin, which you could not uh, wash away, that tanners were exempted from appearing at the temple during the three great Jewish uh, religious feasts of the, of the annual Jewish religious calend- calendar because when they came and they would then gather with men for the worship uh, of the Lord, the smell was so great that nobody could think about God. And so they were excused from being uh, a part of that. In fact, the Jewish Mishnah would later stipulate that a woman who was married to a tanner could divorce him uh, if she pleased to for that that reason. But the main issue with the tanner, excuse me, The main issue that the Jews had with tanners, even with Jewish tanners, <clears throat> was that under the law of Moses, to touch a dead animal rendered you ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day. And because this was his occupation, every single day in the touching of these hides, he was in a perpetual state of being ceremonially uh, <clears throat> unclean. And so Peter's willingness here to lodge in the home of a tanner was an indication that at least some of his Jewish scruples were beginning to weaken at this point. Now, I say all of that uh, to now get to the main gist of the message. You said, you said all of that? Uh, To get to your point, yes, I said all of that. 
uh, to lay a foundation for an, an easy understanding of what uh, comes now. And what I want to do now is to take note of two obstacles that Peter had to overcome, even as an apostle, in order to be willing to be used by God and the way that God used him in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, remember, Peter is not a brand new Christian. This is an apostle. This is an apostle. Three and a half years, day and night with Jesus, listening, watching, absorbing all of it. Ten years now after Jesus' ascension in the heaven, operating here in the office of an apostle. He's been a Christian for a very long time. Notice first the sense of superiority and pride that uh, Peter felt as a Jew compared to the rest of the Gentile world as, as it's revealed in the passage and most specifically in the vision God showed him three times in the uh, lowering of that great tablecloth that was filled with uh, clean and unclean animals just before lunchtime and with the command, rise Peter, kill and eat, in other words, kill uh, and then prepare a meal. Peter refuses, verse 14, he said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And Peter explains to the Lord at this point that he had never, ever broken the dietary laws of the law of Moses. He had only eaten all of his life what was kosher. And he was further communicating that no amount of hunger could ever cause him to do that. He would rather starve to death as a Jew than to eat anything that was unclean. And he felt not only the same way about food, but it was his attitude toward the Gentiles and contact with the Gentiles, and God knew it to be true about his life. And three times God declares to Peter what God has cleansed, verse 15, you must not call common. And the language there of God speaking to Peter is very, very strong. And the, the word you in that sentence is emphatic in the original language. And here's how it reads. God speaking to Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. And he's put his finger right up into Peter's chest here in this particular vision. In other words, Peter, if I declare something to be acceptable, then it is acceptable. Now, this was not a, a, a vision speaking to Peter supremely about Jewish dietary laws. It was intended to prepare his heart for the messengers that God knew were coming from Caesarea and from Cornelius to invite Peter to Cornelius' house in order to tell them what they needed to know about God. And this was, uh, this was about, that this was a Peter, this was all about Peter no longer viewing human beings as he once did, but now to view them as God does. That all mankind had the same standing before God as the Jew did related to salvation. That the forgiveness of sins, the relationship with God through faith in Jesus, all of that is as readily available to the Gentile as it was to the Jew. That Gentiles like Cornelius were acceptable to God in the sense that they could be saved when the gospel was presented to them, and they believed in it just like the Jews did. And Peter got it. 
And Peter knew this is not about food. This is about how I view people and how I view the Gentiles and how I view my fellow man. In chapter 10, verse 28, when he comes to Cornelius' house, you notice that he said to Cornelius and the house, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And Peter is letting them know, I want you to know that I'm not here because I'm some noble Jew or some magnanimous human being or person. God has brought me here kicking and screaming. He has brought me here despite myself and in defiance of my pride toward the Gentile. Pride or that sense of superiority or that seeing myself above is something I think that each of us as God's children have to stay aware of. The Jews fell into it forgetting that God had not called them and made them his own because of some intrinsic value that they possessed or because they were better than other people or because they were more lovable than all of the rest of the people in the world. In fact, when you read the entirety of the Old Testament, you realize that they were a royal pain in the neck to God from one end of the book to the other. So why did God choose them? Not because of something in them. He chose them because He loved them. He chose them and he loved them, not because there was something lovable in them, but because he is love. It was because of his love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, God spoke to them and said, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And I think it's easy for us as Christians, after God has saved us and changed us and he's cleaned us up a bit, to forget who and what we were and what we would still be otherwise and to begin to see ourselves as intrinsically better than other people, superior to other people. God has done all of the saving and all of the sanctifying and all of the changing in our lives, and yet we can act as if we have become what we are today on our own, when in fact, apart from Him, we wouldn't be any different from anyone else in the world and all of the sinners that are around us every single day. And it's important to remember that. The the Jews lost sight of that. The apostles lost sight of that. And it's good to remember that lest we begin to view a world that God is still trying to reach with the gospel and to begin to view that world from the Uh, perspective or the vantage point of pride and a sense of superiority was a very, very deeply committed and deeply spiritual and holy Christian, a leader from the 16th century by the name of John Bradford, 
who would ultimately die at the stake for his faith. He would be burned alive in the city of London for simply being a Christian and being faithful to God's Word. And one day earlier in his life, he saw a group of poor criminals being led away to jail and to worse, and he declared concerning them to those that he was accompanying, he said, there, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. And for all of his spirituality, all of his spiritual depth, for all of his holiness, for all of his sanctification and Christ-likeness, he knew that the same evil principles were still in his own heart that had brought those criminals to their end. And it produced a deep humility in his heart and in his Christian life. And so it does within us. So the first obstacle that God had to overcome in Peter's life was his pride. And then the second obstacle he had to overcome was his respect of persons. We would call this prejudice in verse 34. Notice the verse. And then Peter, as he comes to the house, he opened up his mouth and he said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. And here we have one of the great contrasts between God and human beings. God spoke, and it is this contrast in terms of our capacity, our propensity towards uh, prejudice and respect of persons, when God possesses none of it. One of the great statements spoken in the entire Bible related to this is found in the Old Testament, where a very, very spiritual man, a very spiritual man, a prophet by the name of Samuel is sent by God to the city of Bethlehem in order to anoint the next king of Israel. And as he comes to the house of Jesse, here comes the first and the oldest son. And as he stands here, tall, dark, and handsome, Samuel, viewing him merely from the outward appearance, looks at him and says, here the king is in front of me. And he's convinced that this is the coming king, the future king of Israel. And then the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, Don't look at his appearance or at, uh, concerning uh, the man that was before him. Don't look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. Do you, do you recognize that about yourself the way that I recognize it about myself? And the culture nurtures it so strongly. I can come to such conclusions about people on the basis of merely the outward. And God said, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we have this natural tendency to judge people on the base, basis of who and what they are outwardly as opposed to their heart, to judge them on the base of appearance or on the base of race or nationality or class and so forth. And it's so good to be reminded that God never judges a person in that way. The only way in which God judges a person is on the basis of the quality of their heart. He looks upon their heart. And when Peter makes that statement in verse 34, He's and, and, and declares, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. This is an epiphany for him right now. 
At the moment those words are coming out of his mouth, he is receiving a revelation from God or a deepening of an understanding that he might have accepted about God. But now he's, he's receiving it in steroids. And, it, and all of this is happening in him. This great truth concerning God is dawning on him at that very moment, and it's blowing his mind. And that's why he says, I perceive. It isn't I did perceive. I once perceived. It's happening that instant on that doorstep in his life. We live in a world and in a nation that's filled with personal prejudice. In fact, it's so prevalent that others are able to manipulate other people by virtue of their prejudice. The easiest person in the world to manipulate in the world is a prejudiced person. You just find out what their prejudice is, and then you tell them what they want to hear, and they fall in line in an instant. It's a dangerous characteristic on a lot of levels, but it's so prevalent within our culture that politicians, salespeople, all kinds of people know how to recognize it, know how to nurture it, and then know how to use it toward their end. At the moment in the nation in which we're called to represent Christ in, at this very moment, on a day-by-day basis, and it's been going on now for years, the poor are being pitted against the rich. Blacks are being pitted against whites. Females are being pitted against males, and so forth. And I want to tell you, it's a very dangerous game to play. It's a very, very dangerous game that people are playing in nurturing and then manipulating the prejudice that is in the heart of human beings. Because you can start a fire that you may not be able to put out. You can let a genie out of the bottle that you may not be able to put back in the bottle. And I think about how our foreign policy in the Middle East, where we win on the basis of respect of persons, and upended Libya and the government there, and, and did so in Egypt and beyond, and we set those nations on fire. And when you play this game, you can start a fire that you can't control anymore. And it's a game that's being played right now in our country for a lot of different reasons. We live in the most hyphenated nation in the world, and it's very, very easy to get pulled into all of this. But worse than all of that, you say, how could anything be worse than all of that? Worse than all of that is for a Christian to allow themselves to be pitted against sinners, to begin to view sinners as the enemy, to forget that every day, all day, God is working to bring them to faith in His Son, even when we can't see it or recognize it, because He sees the heart in a way that we don't. We are free to hate the devil. We are free to hate sin, but we are not free to hate the sinner. And then consider myself to be representing Christ, the lover of sinners, in the world. We may not like what people are doing, but we're not free to become prejudiced against them because what we will then do and be tempted to do as Christians is to separate ourselves from them in an unbiblical way, 
to separate into a Christian subculture in the same way that the apostles did, and then to forget as fully as they did that we have been given a great commission, a commission that is a great commission, and it isn't a suggestion. It is a command. And to forget as fully as the apostles ever did that we have also been empowered to fulfill that great commission to make disciples of every nation, of every tribe and tongue, and every people, and every city and neighborhood and gang and union and school and whatever it is and wherever it is that we find ourselves in the middle of. If I understand what the Bible has to say, uh, and I understand it correctly concerning what the Bible has to say, about the moral and spiritual condition of the world and what the Bible refers to as the end times, the times immediately preceding Jesus' return to rapture the church. My understanding of the Scriptures is that things on a moral and a spiritual level are not going to get better than they are now, but that they're going to actually get worse. Paul spoke in this regard. See if you recognize any of it in the world that you live in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, But know this that in the last days perilous times they're coming. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, the overthrow of authority within the family unit, unthankful, an attitude of entitlement, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, and how now, you know, this social media allows a person to become a slander in a way that they never could uh, in past generations with just their mouth. You had to be present in one place to be able to do it. Now you can reach the whole world uh, with it, and there's in cottage industries, massive industries built upon it, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, He said that the last days will be as the days of Noah were. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And you go back into Genesis, the book of Genesis, and read about the condition of the world at the time of Noah. It was times of great wickedness, widespread sexual immorality, unnatural sexual practices being practiced on a widespread basis. It was a time where violence became commonplace in the world, not peace but violence, where we're told that man gave himself to evil imaginations continually. And you think about what goes into the eye gate, what goes into the ear gate on a daily basis in the world, the population of the world from television and movies and music and the internet and entertainment. And Noah's time was a time in which the standard of right and wrong in terms of a biblical standard was almost completely wiped out. Evil was being called good, and good was being called evil. The Bible teaches that in the last days, things will become such morally that they will horrify our sensibilities as Christians, even every bit as much as the conduct of the Gentiles horrified the sensibility of the Jews. 
and we will be tempted to do the very thing that the Jews were tempted to and succumbed to, and that is to build walls so high and so thick to hide behind between us and them, whether out of fear or whether out of pride or prejudice, and that temptation has to be resisted because we're in the midst of in the midst of all of this unsaved world, people are still seeking God like Cornelius. The world is not all the same. They're not all like the people that make up the various headlines or are overturning the morality of the nation. Behind all of the headlines of the mess and the nonsense and sin of this increasingly godless culture, are the multiplying victims of the new morality, of the new culture. But they're never brought out to the forefront. They're never put on display because their lives would condemn the new morality. Their lives and what the new morality turns their lives into would condemn the godless culture. Suicide rate in the United States of America at its highest level in 40 years. It's interesting that one group that's killing themselves more than ever in American history are middle-aged white men. You can look and say, well, they're too weak for what's going on around them, maybe. Or it could be they don't like what they see coming and they're getting out. I don't condone it. It's not right. But this is across all races, across all sexes, across everything in the United States of America. You go online and all you've got to do is spend five minutes searching out the statistics on alcohol addiction, drug addiction, sexually transmitted diseases. Just have a friend or a family member that needs to get into some kind of a rehab center and then find out how hard it is to find a place to check them into. All of these things are at an epidemic level in the culture of the United States of America. I saw and read this week, if it wasn't the week before, I think it was this week, an article by a Harvard professor who was dancing on the grave of the old morality, the biblical morality of the United States of America and celebrating the new morality and saying that the culture wars are over and the Christians that believe in the Bible have lost. And he advocated showing the defeated Christians in their morality no more mercy than the Nazis were uh, to deserve to be shown following the end of World War II in terms of showing them any mercy at the loss of a war. Imagine Christians being likened to Nazis in a defeat, and, and, and his contention was that the West then negotiated with the Nazis on too high of a level at all that the Christians in their current defeat in the culture wars deserve less than the Nazis did from the Allies after defeating them. There's a celebration of the overturning of a biblical morality and that culture within the United States of America. There's a, one interview that I watched this week where there's some young guy, he identified himself as a millennial in age, 
and he is some kind of a political person who is also a celebrity of some kind, and he was making the statement that the culture war is over. There's a new morality. The Bible is gone. It's right and wrong is gone. And he said, I travel the United States of America from one end to the other, and I speak to my generation, the generation of the millennials, and they will never allow that old morality back. And right now you have a nation in the world, but our nation will speak specifically to that, that has a new toy. It has a new morality. It's a new game. It's something new to play with. But they don't know how dangerous it is, and they don't know how quickly it's going to turn on them and the number of casualties it's going to, that it's going to cause. The laws that God puts in His Word are laws. They are laws. You cannot violate His laws and not be damaged any more than you can jump from a ten-story building and defy the law of gravity. There are consequences to defying His laws. And so all of this kind of thing is going on, all of this kind of celebration, and in the midst of all of it, and some of this stuff, the celebration that's occurring, the short-sightedness of all of it, it can just be maddening to listen to. It can be infuriating to listen to. But as Christians, you, we cannot stop there, but to look past it and to realize this goes somewhere. This becomes something. This turns people into something. And it may turn them into a lot of things, but one thing it will uniformly turn them into, and that is casualties. And it is the world's worst time for pride and prejudice to drive us into an unbiblical separation from the world in terms of the gospel when on any given day so many are realizing their need for it. They've already bought into it, and it's come up bankrupt for them. God had Cornelius. He had all of his family, all of his close friends, all of them standing in a house, eager to be saved. All of them wanting to be saved. But God didn't have anyone to send to them with the gospel because they were Gentiles. And I think it's good to be reminded that there's still a whole world out there waiting to be saved, or we'd have been raptured a long time ago. And that one of the greatest hindrances to that occurring it is not their sin, not the darkness of their past, but the pride and the prejudice that can develop in our hearts as God's people that is far quicker because it's easier to do, to build a wall of separation as opposed to seeing the solution for what it really is, and that is to embrace the Great Commission like never before and to take that gospel out into the world and into the lives of needy people in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's a messy business being a Christian in this world, and it's going to get messier as the, we await the Lord's return. But remember, Jesus is the one that came into the messiness of this world from perfection, from holiness, from peace, from beauty. 
He did not build the wall. He came into the world from the safety of heaven in order to engage this world. And we have to do the same thing as his disciples. It's so important to resist the temptation to build these walls based upon fear, based upon prejudice, based upon pride, and to stay engaged with the culture. But that's the commission that God has given to us. And it's the only response to the culture that looks like Christ. I'm probably just preaching to myself today. None of you needed to hear it today. But it was good to be able to do that. Maybe it helps somebody else too. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for this reminder. We get it. We get the Jews. We get the pride. We get the respect of persons. We get the prejudice. We get the fear. We get all of it, Lord. And yet when we lay it against the plumb line, you have your life, Jesus. We see that we can't go there and be like you and do what you've called us to do. And I pray, and we pray for one another, that you'd use this simple time in your word here today to burn away all of these temptations and all of these tendencies and desires to run and build a wall and hold on to the rapture comes rather than to stay engaged with a confidence in your gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Save us from doing what we are so mightily tempted to do. And keep us, Lord, in the mix for your glory. And use this time in your word to accomplish that and to produce, Lord, that uh, purity and that clarity of thought this morning in each one of our lives. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you, but there's an obstacle of your sin and you can only receive the forgiveness of sins through his son.